Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. I'll be hosting this episode. I'm a software developer and tech leader in Alberta's innovation ecosystem. Web3 and virtual reality are my current time suck, and I am passionate about technology and entrepreneurship. As the founder and CTO of New Idea Machine, giving back to the community is important to me. I am always available to offer advice on technology and business. Join me and my guest, Jeff Kramer, as we hear how he has solved all the world's problems and wrote a book about it. Here we go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast for Rainforest Alberta. Today, my guest is Jeff Kramer. Jeff, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, So Jeff's one of those engineering brainy type people, and uh, he's got some really, really cool stuff to talk about today. But first, before we get into all that, I want to learn a little bit more about who who you are and who's Jeff. You know, like what what was your path to where you got to today? Maybe you could sort of talk about like were you born and raised in Calgary, or were you from? Did you come from elsewhere? And then what kind of a kid were you? Just basically, and then let's talk about your career path because I do want to mention a little bit about your company and some of the stuff you're doing there as well. So why don't you take us away? Sure. Yeah. So it's an interesting story. I was born in Quebec and lived on a farm just close to the U.S. border for the, almost the first 10 years of my life. And then the family moved out west because the economics were, were better. And I lived in Calgary for about 35 years. And while I was there, I, of course, went through all the school and graduated from the University of Calgary with a degree in mechanical engineering back in 1992. And then uh, I got a really good job up here in Blackfalds with a company called Control Technology. And uh, I was working as their chief engineer for about 10 years. And I got laid off uh, with a downturn in, you know, with the COVID and all that stuff. And then the company subsequently uh, went under. But anyway, so I started up my own company, Big Time Engineering Corp. And that's how I got here. That's cool. And so have you found that you were able to kind of, you know, hit the ground running with your new company? Are you, are you finding business and keeping yourself productive and and that, or is that kind of leading into where your your book came from? You got a little bit of time on your hands or? (laughs) Well, yeah. And and so it's kind of interesting. The truth is I, I haven't been as active in in my company as I should be, probably. (laughs) I do have a few clients that are fairly loyal, which is good. But uh, the last couple of years, I've been focusing on getting this book out. And and it stemmed from a bit of a personal health crisis. I I had a heart attack a couple of years ago. And and I was like, gee, I don't want to die with all of these ideas inside of me here. And, you know, I think I have myself as an inventor at heart. And so I have a lot of things, radical ideas in my mind that I want to get out there, you know, before that happens and before I die, that is. And I'm hoping and working to to delay that as long as possible, <laughs> change my diet and some of the aspects of my health. So 
hopefully that won't be a recurring issue anytime soon. Oh, that's good to hear. I'm glad to, glad to hear you're still here. I do want to talk about this, this fascinating book as well. Uh, you're, like you said, there's some profound ideas here. And I want to kind of, before we get right into it all, I want to kind of go back a little bit and see where did the, where did the inspiration for this, for the ideas in the book sort of, um, like was the catalyst that besides the, the heart attack and thinking about, you know, eating better and all that kind of thing, but how did the, some of the really, the science and stuff that you're about to talk about is, is pretty, pretty uh, low level and very, very fascinating. So, so how did you get to that point? Um, the truth is I, I read about a lot of this stuff in, in a book called Engineer's Dreams. And I know that the, uh, the listeners can't see it, but it was written by Willie Lay, and he was an associate of Werner von Braun. And uh, he wrote this book, and it's very interesting because it was written in the 1950s. And in it, he talks about all sorts of things. So like, the first chapter is called The Forbidden Tunnel, and it describes a tunnel from France to England. And then Islands That Float was talking about you know, building an aircraft carrier out of ice during the Second World War. The Tamed Volcano talks about using geothermal energy to power the world, and specifically Italy. But of course, we're seeing a lot of that in Iceland and California and stuff. And it goes on and has several other chapters, but one of them is called Waves in Warm Water. Mm. And that is about a technology that's called OTEC, which stands for Ocean Thermal Energy Conversion. And the concept is that in the tropics, we have oceans that can reach temperatures above 30 degrees Celsius. But even though the surface waters are that, that high temperature, when you go to depth, the temperature around the world in the oceans is about three to three and a half degrees Celsius. And that's true in the tropics and the polar regions. So in their scheme, what they would do is they would use the warm surface water to um, basically boil a refrigerant or something like that, and then condense it with the cooler water from depth. And that's, that's a closed cycle system. So the refrigerant would stay in the loop and, and continuously go around. They, they've had several attempts to make this work around the world, and it hasn't really been effective because the temperature difference, in that case, it's about you know 25 or so degrees. It isn't really a large enough temperature to uh, power the cycle very well. And they also have what they call an open loop cycle, which is using the, just the uh, water vapor and then condensing the water vapor. One of the side benefits of that is you get distilled water. It's low temperature distilled water on the, uh, on the downside of it. But the best pressure you can hope for there is less than one atmosphere. So significantly less than one atmosphere. So you need to have these huge heat exchangers and like a, a large turbine or something to make that happen. And the power density is relatively low. What I'm talking about in, in the book is a similar concept. I call it OTDEC, and that stands for Ocean Atmosphere Differential Temperature Energy Conversion. And the um, in the Arctic Ocean, like I said, you've still got the temperature at about three degrees Celsius at depth in the ocean, but the atmosphere can get considerably colder. So you can get down to like minus 60 in Antarctica. You can get down to, well, the lowest temperatures recorded have been, you know, below minus 90. But, you know, even if you get down to minus 70, that's a significant temperature difference. And if you take a working fluid like propane, or you can use propane or ethane or 
ammonia or some of some of the commercial refrigerants that are out there doesn't matter you know as long as you're using something that's appropriate for the temperature range you can boil the uh, the working fluid in the relatively warm ocean water you know three degrees or even if you take it to you know zero degrees celsius or minus two which is about the freezing point of of salt water and then condense it in the atmosphere at minus 70 or you know it doesn't even have to be that cold but the point is that you can have a significant pressure difference and much higher than than what they were able to get with OTEC there and uh the only limitations then become the size of your heat exchanger in the atmosphere and your radiator, essentially, your heat exchanger in the ocean and the size of your, your piping and your engine to harness the power there. Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, what, one question that I have for you is um, with a lot of these technologies that might be out, kind of out in the ocean or whatever, if you're generating power from this sort of opportunity, which I believe you said, energy is is one of the things that gets that you can produce through this this process how do you get that energy to be useful in other parts of the world like how do you is is it stored in in a battery form or is it stored in a compressed form or i'm a little bit unclear on how that works if you could help okay so there there are many different ways you can deal with the energy so once you got the energy there you can use it on site Mm -hmm. so some possible uses would be for instance running a data center so Um, if you think about computers let's say you have a data center in palo alto or something like that you spend almost as much on cooling that system as you do on actually operating it when you take that to the Arctic and you're using an energy system like I'm describing, that heat actually becomes an asset and you can then increase the temperature of the working fluid to get more power out of the cycle. And with something like propane, it's quite interesting. Every gas has got a something that's called a critical point. And when you get up to just over 96 degrees Celsius with propane, you, you reach the critical point and the uh, pressure is pretty intense at that point. The critical pressure is 4.2 megapascals at uh, 96.7 degrees Celsius. So that's about 42 atmospheres of pressure for propane. So that's pretty significant. Now, to give you a comparison, when you're at about zero degrees Celsius, your uh, pressure, saturated pressure for propane is about four and a half atmospheres. And if you go up to, if you're able to get up to like 20 degrees, it about doubles to be about nine atmospheres of pressure. So I jump between metric and atmospheres, and that goes back a little bit to my engineering training. We did learn in, in metric system, but I find that working with atmospheres is a little bit more intuitive. So I, I grew up during the time in the 70s when Canada was transitioning from imperial to metric. So conversant in both, but I find the imperial system is a little bit more intuitive when you're talking about like pounds per square inch as opposed to kilopascals or things like this. So. Right, right. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So, and that makes a lot of sense. And especially if you have something like computers that generate a lot of heat, that, that can add a lot of value to the system, but it can also add, like, for example, if you have people there looking after the computers, the, the computers could be generating heat to warm the people that are there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So. And, and I'm sorry, I didn't really answer your question because I was just talking about one aspect. So I'm going to give you a couple of more applications that you could do on site. So you could 
use the electricity to, for chemical reactions. So obviously, producing hydrogen would be one chemical reaction, but you can also condense atmospheric nitrogen and then mix the hydrogen and nitrogen together and, and produce ammonia. And then ammonia becomes a feedstock for fertilizer or explosives. So you could have a whole chemical plant up there operating on site and being self-supported in terms of energy. You can also, if you've got the, um, uh, the electricity and you've got the Arctic Ocean there, well, it's a very easy thing if you use a heat pump to suck energy out of the ocean to warm up a space. So if you've got warmth and you've got electricity for lighting, all you need then is fertilizer and water and you can start growing stuff. So I've got a, a section of the book that's called Little Greenhouse on the Polar Ice Cap, which is basically about that. And it doesn't, you don't even need light, of course, in the middle of winter, there's no light up there. So you can grow like, like our good old grow ops used to do inside of shipping containers. And they still use that technology today and grow whatever you want. If you've got the energy and the heat and all the rest of that, of course, in the summertime, if you're staying on the polar ice cap, you got all the sunlight you want because it's 24 hours up near the North Pole. And that lasts for about six months. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, turns out it could be a very good place to, to grow stuff, even though it's very counterintuitive to do so. Brilliant. So those are, those are a couple of applications. The, the other one in terms of getting energy out of there is you can, as I mentioned, produce ammonia or hydrogen. Both of those uh, chemicals are able to be transported. I suggest that we might be able to use things like large hydrogen airships to you know, transport the, the gas to places like Arizona. And then as a, as a side benefit, when you, when you, you run it through the fuel cell, you get water at the other side of it, as well as electricity. And if you're doing it, in, if you're basically able to create a chain of airships going down continuously, you essentially are transferring all of that energy to the desert and you're producing continue essentially a power plant's worth of electricity plus you're getting the side benefit of having a significant amount of water being produced and that water can be used like the beauty of an airship is you can take it up to height right so you build your power plant on top of mesa that's a couple of kilometers high and then you can generate hydroelectricity from it too on the way down and then you can use that in a greenhouse and produce some food and then or for potable water for drinking, supporting a population and stuff. And literally, if you're producing like that, that kind of amount of energy, I, I talk about, I give actual numbers in the book, but you could support, you know, 40,000 people, no problem. Uh, like you'd be producing enough water for, for that many people in the desert. And significantly more if you're being judicious on how you're using the water. With 25 one gigawatt plants, I figure you can actually support about a million people if they're using, a, you know, about 80 gallons of water a day. Amazing. And the, um, the ability to produce clean, drinkable water is from, from essentially ocean salt water is kind of an amazing piece of this, isn't it? Right. And, and so that, that's just talking about producing water from, from the hydrogen. So using electricity to break down the water to, you know, turn it into hydrogen and then, then producing it you know, transporting it to where you want to use it. The, the whole process that I'm describing where you're using, say, propane to suck heat out of the ocean to run your, your power cycle, that produces ice on its own as well. And it produces a lot of ice. So for a one gigawatt plant, you'd be producing approximately 
I think the number was four cubic meters of ice per second. Wow. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, the water is a, is a very valuable commodity. Um, and I, and I talk, uh, I have a whole chapter dedicated to water, water rights and water usage and stuff like this. And I'm, you know, there, there's a lot of controversy about using, you know, like I see a lot of hate emails about, you know, Nestle going in and sucking water out of the ground and, and putting it into their bottles and, and, and selling it and, and, you know, reducing that amount of water from a particular watershed or something. Personally, don't have a problem with it. I, I see water as being a renew, renewable resource. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, nobody's screaming at Coca-Cola for doing the same thing and adding <laughs> sugar to it. But anyways, the, the, the point there is that all of the water in, in our civilized world is pr- pretty much spoken for in terms of water rights. And, and if you go to places like California and Germany, I mean, in Germany, you get taxed for the rainwater that falls on your house, at least in Bavaria. Wow. And in Colorado, you're not even allowed to collect rainwater that falls on your property because all of the water rights are allocated to landowners and, and different groups. So I think you might be able to, to capture the rainwater on your roof for personal use, and that's about it or something. Wow. But um, it's, it's pretty interesting how uh, the water rights are allocated, particularly in the States. So if you had a source of water that was produced, say, in international waters or even in coastal waters of Canada, in the Arctic, there, there are no restrictions that I'm aware of to selling that water internationally. Now, I should say that in Canada, you're not allowed to sell surface water at all. Like, uh, you're allowed to sell groundwater if it's bottled in bottles that are less than 20 liters or something like this. I forget exactly what the rules are. But, uh, you know, so companies like Clearly Canadian were able to take groundwater and, and ship it in, down to the States and, and, and this sort of thing. Be allowed to fill up an ocean tanker and, and take it down to the States and sell it to Long Beach or something like that. And there was actually a guy, I remember, in an old W5 program from the 80s, there was a guy who wanted to do exactly that, you know, capture the rainwater coming off of a mountain in BC, fill up a tanker with it. And he actually had a contract with, I think it was Long Beach. That if, if he could supply the water, they would buy it from him. But the Canadian government kiboshed that. So, geez, that's fascinating. And you're right. Like water, it's essentially, it doesn't go anywhere. Like when, when people use water, it goes back into the environment and then eventually through the cycles of clouds and, and evaporation and condensation and all that, it all comes back around again and stuff. So yeah, the hy- hydrological cycle. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. I find it fascinating. And I say this in the book too, as an engineer, I find it fascinating that we don't have restrictions on selling our non-renewable resources in the form of oil and gas internationally, but we do restrict the sale of water, (laughs) which is really bizarre given that Canada has, what is it, more than a third of all the fresh water in the world or something like that, that isn't, you know, tied up in Antarctica or Greenland. So yeah. It's very strange to me that we aren't taking advantage of that and selling as much of it as possible because, you know, we got something called a national debt and it seems to me that selling water internationally would be a really good way to pay that down. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. But uh, if Nestle was to put their plant up on in up in the Arctic, then they'd be able to bottle up all those bottles and ship them over to wherever they wanted. And <laughs> yeah, ex- Exactly. Well, and, and it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, again, I, in the book, I, I do some calculations on 
how much can we make if we turn this electricity into hydrogen and how much can we make if we sell it to computer companies. But regardless of which system I, you know, try to charge for generating electricity, the best way to make money is actually bottling it, bottling the water that you're producing as a side product and selling that. And I talk about ways that it could be done. Like a one gigawatt plant, you could, you could sell the water and produce about a billion dollars of in sales per year, or sorry, $20 billion in sales per year. If you took that water and were able to sell it for 25 cents per liter. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's insane. And, you know, I talk about the economics of building a system like this. Well, use a $20 billion as, as a really rough high estimate on, on what it would take to build one of these plants. And I got that number from the most expensive oil rig in the world to build was a Russian oil rig. And it's, uh, you know, working in the Sea of Okhotsk or whatever, however that's pronounced, off the coast of the west, sorry, the east coast of Russia. And um, they estimate the cost of that was about $12 billion. And it's designed to be able to withstand two meters of ice and, you know, Arctic, subarctic conditions. So I said, well, let's take that and we'll add an extra 50% to that. And we'll, we'll put in an extra $2 billion, another 10% as a contingency. And we'll call it $20 billion even. And that's how much I'll, I'll use as a rough estimate to withstand, you know, polar conditions of three meters of ice and, you know, really low temperatures. But, you know, like I said, if you bottle that water that you produce as a byproduct of producing the electricity up there, you can make that $20 billion uh, investment back in a year if you can sell it at a, at a quarter per liter. Yeah. Well, if you take the, if you have the water coming out and then you take the electricity and you feed the electricity into a Bitcoin mining operation, <laughs> then you yeah. start getting exponential here but uh yeah. it's cool. i got this pet shop boys song going through my head <laughs> let's make lots of money right <laughs> so we talked about the energy quite a bit we talked about the water quite a bit let's talk a little bit about the food because there's there's a lot of pieces in play here that could sustain you know a, a hydroponics or a, or a, some sort of greenhouse type operation or whatever can you talk a little bit about the in, idiosync intricacies of that yeah, so the uh, we already talked a little bit about the greenhouse. So if you got your fertilizer, you got your heat, you got your water, you pretty much have everything you need to grow plants. And it would be a great place to research, you know, growing stuff on Mars and growing stuff in, in space because it's a completely artificial environment. But think of the benefits of that. So you got your fertilizer, you don't need any pesticides, you don't need any herbicides, um, you're not basically poisoning the food that you're eating. Mm -hmm. then, then let's take that to the next step. Let's, you got, you got your energy platform and surrounded by the energy platform, you got ice that's maybe a couple of meters thick. And it's an easy thing to do to just put some lighting underneath the ice and you can hang, hang hangers from, from the ice like on floats. And then you have a substrate that you can grow like kelp on. And surprisingly, kelp actually grows in the Arctic quite well. And when you've got kelp and you've got light, algae grows naturally on the, uh, on the bottom of, of the ice flows. In springtime, when, when the sun returns to the Arctic, there's actually algae trapped in the ice and it starts photosynthesizing. It's, it's developed, you know, nature's developed a way for it to survive being frozen. And then it just basically comes to life, starts producing oxygen, 
and, and sucking carbon out of the ocean. And, and then once you got the algae there, you get your copepods that start eating that. And then you, you get the fish starting to eat the copepods and you've got an entire natural cycle there. All you have to do is produce light in the, in the middle of winter. Mm. And, and if you want to grow algae and stuff, you, you produce the substrate to go on that. The other thing that uh, you have with these polar energy platforms is it requires a lot of water flowing through the system, right? So for the heat transfer. So you're going to suck some of that out and turn it in, like freeze it. Oh, by the way, I, sh I should mention when you freeze the, the water, it's going to form crystals. And, and the crystals, like a lot of pure substances, when they form, they're going to excrete the salt out of them. And that's how you get the, the potable fresh water. So if you imagine refrigerate like a your freezer, you know, essentially put freezers under the water to suck the heat out of the uh, out of the ocean, and then the warm end you use to boil the propane, and you can boil it above the temperature that I was talking about earlier, so in around you know say eighteen degrees or something like that, which significantly increases the the efficiency of the system. By the way, with a heat pump, you get all the energy you put into the motor. And the energy of transfer for a low temperature transfer like that, you get something called a coefficiency of performance or coefficient of performance. And, and for 20 degrees like that, you get something like a value of eight. What that means is for every kilowatt of power you put into the system, you get the equivalent of eight kilowatts of energy out of the system. So it's actually a very efficient process. But like I say, so producing the water. You're, and then you're capturing that, of course, the, the ice and all that stuff. But as the water is being sucked into the inlets, you have a natural flow and, and the ocean water is, is the richest water. The Arctic Ocean and the, the Southern Ocean around Antarctica are the richest waters in the world in terms of nutrients. And so if you imagine having in the intakes, instead of, you know, trying to avoid biofouling, instead you put in a whole bunch of oysters and, you know, other filter feeders that actually, you know, suck these microbes out of the, the planktons and, and stuff out of the water, you then have a whole other income stream that you can get from, from the filter feeders. So hmm. it's all, I see the whole system as being a very synergistic system where one, one aspect leads to producing a profit center for another thing. But if you just looked at it as a power plant and, you know, like Hibernia or something like that, it's got one purpose and, and that's all you're going to focus on. You're missing out on, on the opportunities that are associated with it. Amazing. What a fascinating conversation. Probably one of the more cerebral conversations we've had on, on this podcast, but uh, absolutely, absolutely interesting. So I guess the, the million dollar question is, why hasn't anyone done this yet? So like I said, the book's been around and uh, the, uh, the original concept, there was a, a French chemist named... I'm going to probably butcher his name here, but he's a fairly famous chemist, De Arsenaval. And he was, he came up with the idea back in the 17, is it 1700s, 1800s? I'm not entirely sure here. I'm not sure if I can find it. But anyways, it's the idea, the concept has been around for well over a hundred years. And like I said, the, the OTEC idea was tried after World War One. And they haven't really been able to make it work in terms of producing power. But the interesting thing is they've found all sorts of other benefits, like the University of Hawaii set up a system. And by sucking up the cold water from the ocean depths, 
they ran that through pipes in like in a garden system and they're able to cool crops and they find that the crops do much better in the tropic heat if they're cooled at least the roots are cooled and also by cooling them causes moisture from the air to condense and basically water the crops as well so it's not like it's a lost technology and there are things that I'd like to do like to try with OTEC as well to to make it see if I can make it work better than what they're doing currently but you can go online on YouTube and see all sorts of schemes that have been tried with OTEC. Like I say, to date, it hasn't been successful. But I start out the book by talking about eight challenges that are that the world is facing. Everything from melting polar ice caps, ocean sea level rise, and you know, burning fossil fuels and, and all the pollution that's associated with that. I figure that with about you know, if, if we built about six thousand of these one gigawatt peps, we can actually replace all of the energy that we're using in the world from all sources. So whether that's fossil fuels or wind power or whatever, with this technology. And and I go through and, and say, well, you know, if China manages to build a couple hundred um, uh, coal plants every year, we should be able to, you know, pool the global resources and build a couple hundred of these things every year. And I think I make a pretty decent case that we can, you know, make this work and become carbon neutral by 2050 if, if we, you know, do an asserted or concerted effort. So that's that's amazing. Thank you for being here, Jeff. This was so fascinating to me. Really excited about your new book. When does it, when does it go out on the shelves? As we were talking about earlier, I don't have a date for for when it'll be available on the shelves, but I'm hoping it'll be in the next few weeks. Um, and I was just working on the, the book description for Amazon today. So yeah, it should be fairly soon. I'll, I'm expecting I'll have a printed print on demand copy available in my hands within a week or so. And then from there, it's a pretty quick step to get it on, uh, on Amazon at least and, and other online sellers, whether or not we'll get it into bookstores that because it's self-published, I got to work on that, but hopefully there'll be enough demand and interest. And I, I plan to market it through podcasts like this and also, uh, you know, radio interviews, hope to get on, you know, different national programs on NPR and CBC and that sort of stuff and uh, draw up some interest for the book. Well, we wish you the best of luck. We'll put whenever the link for the book on Amazon or whatever is ready, we'll actually update our show notes and insert the link in there. So if anybody's listening to this in the future and they're like excited to get a hold of your book, they'll be able to go to our show notes and download the, or get the link to the book to, to purchase it. And uh, yeah, I, you know, you're a, you're a part of the Rainforest community. So I'm sure we'll see you at future Rainforest Lunch Without Lunch events. And uh, you can let people know how things are going with the book and, and answer any questions that people may have as well. But we'll also have your LinkedIn URL in the show notes for people who want to get in touch with you and follow along or help out or be a part of this in some way. Because I'm sure it's, you know, a lot of people are probably going to be really interested in, in how this could become something. It makes a lot of sense. There's a, there's a bunch of technologies here that have all been shown to be real. It's not like a, a perpetual motion machine or something, which is like literally impossible. It's actually a bunch of different technologies that have already been proven. And if I caught anything out of this, the one thing that maybe maybe you can correct me, but it sounds like a lot of people try to do this in warm water and that doesn't provide enough pressure. But if they would have moved this to the Arctic, 
then the pressures increase so high that it's actually viable. And so maybe that's just one thing that, that people haven't done yet. Yeah, so. absolutely. And, and I mean, I, first section of the first chapter, I talk about, you know, how harsh the Arctic environment is and, and probably why it hasn't been done. Because, you know, people haven't, first of all, they didn't realize this was even possible because I'm sure there's not many people who, who, who've read the book that I've read and, and all of that sort of stuff or have an engineering background to, to kind of put these pieces together. But the, because the Arctic is so inhospitable, you know, people don't want to live there. To, to give you a concept, if you look at all of Canada's Northwest Territories, so Yukon, Northwest Territories, and Nunavut, the total population of all those territories is about twice the population of Red Deer. So about 200, le- sorry, it's less than twice the population of Red Deer. So there's about 150,000 people, maybe 160,000 people in the Arctic, and Red Deer is about 100,000 people. So it's very sparsely populated. And actually compare Nunavut to the Chinese city of Macau. And Macau isn't, it's like, you know, it's not anywhere close to the top 10 cities. It's like well down past 600 in terms of population. But if you look at the, it's one of the most densely populated cities. And so they have about 65 square meters, I think it was, space for each person that's there. Well, if you go to Nunavut, they've got 65 square kilometers per person who lives there. So that's literally a million times more space than somebody who lives in Macau. Wow. So, um, yeah, it's really amazing. And, and so the Arctic is, I mean, Canada's got an issue in, in terms of the sovereignty of, of the Arctic and stuff. Nobody's, you know, tried to make a claim of it, but you can imagine if 100,000 Chinese decided they wanted to settle on Ellesmere Island, could be, could be an issue, you know? So, <laughs> anyway, if we can get more people up there and more industries and, and start settling in the area and harvesting things sustainably, this is, this is where we want to go. So That's a very valid point. And I think, um, you know, Elon and all the people that are thinking about exploring space and building habitats on the moon and, and on Mars and stuff like that should be starting out by building you know, some sort of biodome up there where people can live comfortably and then still manage these power plants and deal with all the yeah. technology that you're talking about. The Mars Society actually has a um, sort of a test site on Devon Island. The closest community to them is about 350 kilometers away. And the idea is they want to be self-sufficient and test concepts for living on Mars in that atmosphere. So the temperatures in the winter is comparable to what it is on Mars. And they, they practice things like going through an airlock every time they go out. You know, they, they, if they have a medical emergency, they try to deal with it on site before trying to call in a helicopter or whatever. But yeah, it is a really good test site for, for living off world. And that is why they've set up in that location. So interesting. You should mention it. Brilliant. Well, thanks again for being here. Um, I cool. hope you, uh, hope you had fun chatting with me and, uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I should also mention, I do have a website for the book. It's still under development, but it's called infiniteresourcesbook.com. And uh, as I mentioned, we're under constant development. The idea is that I'll be putting any notes associated with the book up there for, for people to look at. And, uh, and then I'd like to build up a community there, probably on Facebook as well, mm-hmm. and, and maybe on, on LinkedIn. But, you know, like you said, I'm hoping that there will be a lot of interest in these ideas. I'm looking for people to invest in developing them. But also, you know, if you don't have money to invest, if you've got skills that you can contribute, we'd love to be able to work with you as well. So. Excellent. 
And I think we both know a mechanical engineer that could help out with some of the concepts if people needed uh, assistance. <laughs> well, yeah, I actually intend to to start up companies that, that do all of these things and partner with other companies, you know, that are doing the hydroponics and those sorts of things. Excellent. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we wish you all the best and thank you for taking your time today and have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you, Al. Have a good weekend. Cheers. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode was brought to you by New Idea Machine. NIM helps new software developers, UI UX designers, and product managers gain mentored hands-on industry experience. And at the same time, we provide companies with risk-free tech talent. Definitely a win-win-win situation. Visit newideamachine.com for more information. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>